we can uh, we can just bang this out in the best way. Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney, as well as a very special guest, Jake Rodkin. Hey, everyone. You might, you might know him from, you know, making Firewatch or, you know, maybe the Idle Thumbs podcast. Uh, and we're here on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. And we just took a little break. Rob and Jake, what have you guys been up to over the little sort of Christmas, New Year's break? I'll let Jake go because I, I gather Jake's been up to exciting things like completing <laughs> a game. Uh, I haven't quite finished a video game. I've, I've been working with uh, everyone here at Campo Santo on Firewatch, which comes out in February. Man, it's weird talking about Firewatch on an Idle Thumbs podcast. <laughs> um, I've been working on that, and it kind of took up most of my break. So you didn't really have a Christmas break, basically. Yeah. Uh, no, no break. I mean, it was basically, I did two things, which was celebrate holidays uh, with family and friends and work on video game during all available minutes that were not occupied by that. Um, <laughs> so it, it wasn't too bad, because, you know, I like making games, but it was it felt like less of a break than I would like. Well, but, I, did, I did something almost as arduous, uh, I have to say. I, uh, I, I stayed with my parents uh, at their new place over the break, uh, which my first day there, I discover uh, my, just one of those ominous out-of-context remarks. My parents are like, well, just remember, uh, you know, if you, if you leave your phones and your computers on, uh, turn off that auto-updating stuff because you don't want to use up all the internet. And that's one of those, like, okay, did my parents abruptly, like, forget how the internet actually works? Or are we data capped? And the answer was, of course, we were data capped. My parent, my dad has had this lifelong dream of living out in the woods. Uh, he basically turned into a grumpy old man, uh, in the last few years. And as young families started moving into their old neighborhood, he was like, that's it. We're done. We're, we're moving out. We're, we're moving, uh, to basically the middle of nowhere, which, in Indiana, you can get real middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. So the, the house is great and everything, but they don't have any real uh, ISP. And so they, they're running their entire network off, uh, you know, off cellular internet, basically. Wow. Oh, man, so, I was going to say, please, please say a phone. Yeah. <laughs> and dial up. It is basically a tethered phone. Uh, nice. So that is, yeah, we, like it's a, it, it's a cellular modem, but man, it looks like a smartphone to me. Uh, so did, just did it there. feel did it feel nice to go back to your parents' house and then sort of along with the sweeping holiday nostalgia, you also got like sweeping internet nostalgia where you uh, <laughs> where you were on this like rate limited data limited so uh, pre broadband. Here's the thing, it actually was really nice uh, because okay, yeah, it, at first like that was you know that was sort of a record scratch moment where like I you know I had a bunch of work to do. Uh, I brought my my PS4 home. Uh, so I could show my parents and blow them away with all the things it could do. With all the rad graphics? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I realized just hooking that thing up to the network would, like, destroy their data cap limit for the month. <laughs> uh, but but no, like, once I adjusted to it, uh, it turned into a really good thing because basically it, it forced me off the computer uh, and into a chair to read books. But then it also gave me a chance to uh, play something that I've tried to finish four times before, uh, which is the original Fallout. Um, my girlfriend's really into the series and she's really been trying to get me into, um, any kind of fallout. And she was about to throw in the towel and say, just start on fallout four. Uh, but I, I decided to give over the break. I decided to give fallout one, uh, one last try. Uh, my, my previous playthrough, I got real close to finishing it. Uh, and then the save along with the laptop it was on was stolen out of TSA security line, uh, in Las Vegas. Oh my God. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't cool. Uh, but Anyway, so I finally I finally played Fallout One, which is I guess an acknowledged classic. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and I don't. It was fun. It, there was a lot of cool stuff in there, but at the same time, I'm kind of amazed at at how incredibly arduous and weird this 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 game was. Like to the point where where I was like. Are all my memories of like '90s PC gaming basically a lie? Like, was it was it always this? Was it always this brutal to to try to play games like this? Were they always so inexplicable? And did they always like delight in sticking landmines under your feet, which they only told you about later? Like, I, I played. I had a, I had a four hour session of Fallout One. 
did a ton of things. And at the end of it, you know what I discovered? My character was fatally poisoned with radiation and had been fatally poisoned with radiation for the entire length of that session. I only discovered this after I tried to leave the zone and kept dying like two minutes after on the overworld map. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And it's because, and I try to keep going back to an earlier save. And then I figure out like, oh God, no, my guy, my guys are radiated. And all of my saves are basically with this walking dead man. God, that is, that is really funny. My girlfriend did the same thing. She's been playing, we just got a Steam link and she has been playing Fallout 1 as well during this, this entire parallel time. It, it, I just, as an observer, watching this game be played is, is a fascinating sort of thing because it's sort of like, I kind of understand what's going on. I kind of understand things by osmosis from watching, you know, Fallout games over the years, but I, Man, I I don't quite get it yet. Maybe I need to actually put my hands on it to totally understand it. It's just it's it, it's fundamentally weird, I guess. Like I can sort of see why why people latched onto it because I don't I I don't have the greatest context for RPGs in particular. Uh, it's always mm-hmm. been a genre I've kind of bounced off of. Uh, but something I do admire about this game is like as, as annoying as like getting radiation poisoned and not knowing you were basically dead. For three hours of play, uh, <laughs> yeah. as annoying as that is, it's kind of cool too that someone was like, "Oh, let's let's build this entire system into the game," but then just like real radiation, we'll keep it hidden, and so <laughs> players will only get yeah. the slightest hint that something is amiss. Uh, that and- does that does feel like a like a nineties yeah. g- PC gaming thing to the max. Although that is a very hardcore example of it. System so pure that the player won't even know that they're there until they are killed four hours later. <laughs> yeah, to, to be fair to the, the the people who made this game, uh, there were warning signs like this. Like I'm sure people know now where I was. I was in, I was in a place called the Glow, uh, which was like ground zero for whatever disaster happened. Uh, and when you walk into the zone, you see a bunch of people who've basically been cooked by radiation. Uh, so there's a lot of warning signs that like sure. you're, you're in danger being in this place. But beyond that, there is nothing to tell you uh, to the degree to which you've been poisoned. And the thing is, I even had a Geiger counter, which you can sort of run over yourself to see how bad things are. But I checked myself, like, toward the start, and I was fine. Like, I had very low radiation. And then I kind of, you know, went off and did a bunch of stuff, and I figured it was still sort of – I was getting radiated at a very low rate. But it's not even, I don't think, uh, how how irradiated everything is. So I think there's, like, hotter zones uh, somewhere in there. But I definitely – what really got me killed was at one point you have the option to play chess with the supercomputer. And you can't beat the supercomputer, but because I'm because I'm an idiot and because it's a game, I just started saying, "Let's play another game of chess. Let's play another game of chess." And each time you do it, the camera fades out and fades in, which in this game denotes the passage of time. I did that like eight times, so my guy just got—he was just playing all this chess, but I was totally, totally like not aware of the fact that. Just, just cause I clicked that button like, like eight times in the space of a minute meant that my character had been sitting in this like radiation hot box <laughs> for like two days playing chess with this robot. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, it's kind of weird. It's, it, it's kind of cool. There's, there's all these attempts to create. It's really modern forward looking in a lot of ways. Cause there's not only are these, there's these systems that are sort of concealed from you, but there's also all these attempts to create these chains of causality, right? Where, like, you do a quest over here for these people, and somehow it'll relate to this other thing you're doing. The universe, the, the world is aware of what you're doing, what you've gotten up to, and who you've helped. Uh, and I'm not sure that was, I'm not sure that was, like, standard operating procedure back in, back in the 90s. But, like, now, of course, the, like, Fallout's really predicting a lot of the way that open world games w- would be designed, you know, like 20 years later, which, which is pretty cool. Uh, albeit kind of maddening to, to go back and play this, this first instantiation of it. I sort of love that example of sort of slowly being irradiated while playing chess, because I feel like that more than anything else in the fallout universe is the most sort of realistic way that you would actually die in a post apocalypse, you know? Oh, I guess I'll just keep playing chess, this thing to amuse myself while I slowly waste away like yeah. the wasteland. It's kind of maybe hilariously this time I'll beat perfect. The robot. Yeah, there you go. Maybe this yeah. time. Just one more game. 
again, I am sort of interested in it because uh, my girlfriend's been playing it. I have been doing a lot of watching other people play games because I have been watching a lot of AGDQ this week. Um, so AGDQ, in case you don't know, it is Awesome Games Done Quick. It is sort of a marathon event where speedrunners will play all kinds of games. It's a charity event uh, to uh, the, I believe, the American Cancer Society, or it is yeah. a cancer prevention uh, sort of foundation. A really sort of just good-hearted, happy event in general. Um, you know, it's obviously all for a good cause. People s seem to be pretty happy about it. And, you know, they're clearly, the speedrunners themselves are doing incredible feats as you watch. Uh, a couple of the runs that I have been the most engrossed by this week, uh, the Fez run, I was I was really, really into that one. Not because it was, you know, sort of the world's greatest run or anything like that. Just, I love watching the way Fez uh, just gets deconstructed by sort of everything, uh, you know, sort of everything the player is doing, the way that, you know, you're basically sort of flipping the world around and that's the way the game was made. And they're obviously sort of taking it apart fundamentally. It's it's just fascinating, really cool stuff. It, do, do I feel like I learn about design when I watch this stuff, you know? Well, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you yeah. is, is that I actually used to be kind of resistant to speed running. Sure. Uh, in part, because that's just not what I'm in, that's not what I'm into games for, right? Mm -hmm. Like that level of mastery is interesting, but not necessarily. It doesn't do it for me, because uh, I actually don't want necessarily to see behind the curtain, right? I, I like to preserve the idea of the facade of, of the fiction of the game, but speedrunning is all about breaking that, right, and exposing how a game works. And yeah. uh, like, I, like, I, so I'm curious, like, watching a bunch of speedruns of different games, like, do you find they are like expanding your understanding of how games are made. I feel that they are, although I certainly prefer speedruns for for, you know, particular kinds of games more than others. You know, I think it's it's very cool the way something like Gone Home is speedrun, but I'm not terribly interested in that so much because, you know, a game like that I'm in it 100% for the theater. I mean it 100% for just sort of the story and wanting to be fooled by the facade, so to speak. But something like Fez, which was constructed as sort of this little puzzle platformer with this clockwork world, Seeing how it's broken down is is just just awesome and fascinating to me. You know, games that uh, I played a lot of as a kid, I enjoy watching those. Obviously, partially for nostalgia reasons, but also because it's just damn cool to see how you know, say, Super Mario World is basically completely broken. You know, twenty six years later, there was a run I was watching last night uh, that was actually sort of a four way race, and some of the tricks that they've sort of or, or strats i guess you know you want to use the cool kid <laughs> lingo <laughs> some of the strats nice. they've come up with in you know sort of the last year or two there was one i believe that was just in the last year where they found out if you you know basically used a p-switch in this extremely specific circumstance it'll turn into yoshi wings or, or something like that it's almost it almost feels to me like programming or counter programming that's what they're actually doing they're breaking down the game into these weird and interesting ways and i'm just so fascinated by when they do that well and obviously when it sort of coincides with the game i know very well so I, I really enjoy this stuff for sure um i'm very much looking forward to you know a couple of other runs i know there's a there's always sort of a donkey kong country portion of the game which of course as a you know donkey kong country super fan i always love to see every new trick and every new little thing and of course these runners know the game so well and some of them are actually very entertaining as they're sort of talking about the tricks or, you know, doing their own little dance in the middle of it. I think Trihex is very uh, famous for doing sort of Yoshi's Island speedruns and dancing in the middle of them, you know, things like that. Did, it's did it's you cute. you catch the Stepmania speedrun earlier <laughs> no, today? No, I, I didn't. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, God. It was one of the craziest damn things I've ever seen. Um, oh, so Stepmania great. is like Dance Dance Revolution, but I guess you you, you can play it with your keyboard. Um and you can, because it's a keyboard game, or at least at this level, it's a keyboard game. Sure. Uh, people play it at this at this absolutely ins insane difficulty level. <laughs> uh, and I was just watching this guy, like his his consistent, if if you rendered in StarCraft terms, his actions per minute, I think was up around like two sixty five, three hundred. Whoa. And he was doing it with ninety eight percent accuracy, uh, like ninety eight ninety eight percent perfect accuracy uh, on all the on, on all the cues. And the thing is, he was even doing things where like the notes would be uh, the 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 arrows would be spinning around, so you couldn't even really look ahead 
uh, to what was about to pop because the arrow was spinning around. It wouldn't lock in until it crossed the, uh, the, the little silhouettes of arrows to tell you what <laughs> you got to hit. Ew. And the dude just, it was one of the most nerve wracking things. Because you're watching, it's like watching somebody like juggle grenades, right? You're like, okay, this guy obviously knows what he's doing, but this can't, this, this is going to end in tears. Uh, <laughs> but it didn't. And it was, it was just, it was just this amazing moment of, of like collective disbelief on Twitter, in the room. Uh, you're just seeing all the people in the background just sort of staring at this kid, uh, just like laying waste to this game with just one of the most inc- like mechanically impressive things I've ever seen someone do with a video game. Uh, it was it was incredibly cool. Oh, it's so awesome. I, I I just it feels to me like it is half programming and half like performance art in some ways. You know, just mm. sort of like an athlete at the top of their game also sort of dancing. I don't know. It's like a really weird and and fascinating combination to me. I know there's a lot of people uh, who you know have kind of soured on it over the years. It's gotten a little bit ridiculous. It has its own sort of lingo, and there are definitely you know there can be a predominance of it seems like you know sort of young boys sort of doing their thing and being goofy and, and so on and so forth. But I've always really gotten into the spirit of it and enjoyed it quite a bit. So. Good. Cause you were so close to turning into gaming substitute teacher right there. <laughs> you were like, you were like this close. <laughs> Never Rob. I'm, I am no substitute for anything. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to uh, talk about, and this is the reason we've got uh, Jake here is, yeah. is that uh, just before the break, we, we had a little discussion of, like who gets the credit for performance in video games, right? Because you have a lot of actors now working in video games. A lot of them are doing mocap, and we sort of a discussion of 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 who the credit belongs to. And we got a really great uh, reply from from one of our from one of our readers. Yeah. Um. And this this comes from Christian. And uh, this this is sort of how we'll kick off weekend correspondence. And uh, th- I want to talk to Jake about this after we read the letter. Yeah. Uh, hey, weekend. Enjoying the new cast. You were wondering about facial animation in games and how much is an actor's performance and how much is the animator's. Uh, I wrote a thing in the forum discussion for the episode, uh, but it was pointed out to me that I should send it to questions instead. So here's what I wrote. Uh, for context, I work in games animation, mostly on keyframes, but I've occasionally done some mocap stuff as well. Uh, real quickly, actually, because this is this is a term that's going to come up again, again and again. Uh, Jake, when people are talking about keyframes and keyframing, what exactly yes. is meant by that? When you're animating something, especially in a computer, a keyframe is one of the frames that you actually pose out yourself by hand. Like if you're animating a character's face, you could maybe have a keyframe where his his or her eyebrows are raised, and then 20 frames later, you have a keyframe where that character's eyebrows are lowered, and the computer interpolates in between to sort of make an animation of lowering an eyebrow. Obviously, if you're if you're an actual animator, you would not uh, you would not literally have one keyframe of a raised eyebrow and a keyframe <laughs> of a lower of a lowered eyebrow to convey anything resembling an expression. It's way more complicated than that. But uh, generally, keyframed animation means it's animated by hand by an animator, as opposed to motion capture, where you have uh, an actor in a in a suit or in some sort of capturing. Uh, rig and a computer is tracking their movement and um, at least traditionally motion capture when you first get it back from the computer takes a 3D scan of where that actor is sitting and drops a keyframe for every joint on the character's body that they're acting for uh, every single frame so it's basically you know capturing a person Mm -hmm. doing something and putting their movement onto a video game or in the case of film just you know a virtual character's Mm -hmm. Skeleton. Okay, so returning to Christian's uh, Christian's email, yes. uh, he goes on to write, Usually with mocap or performance capture, there is still a lot of cleanup and refinement done by animators after the fact. Sometimes you only keep elements of the original performance, either to make it more stylized or, quote-unquote, pushed, or to make actions flow together smoothly. So Natasha story, uh, basically about... You know, if you remember, there was this whole push to get Andy Serkis an Oscar for Gollum. Uh, and the argument made was... You know, that's entirely an Andy Serkis performance, right? And, uh, the argument the, in that, in the article linked is that from the filmmaker's point of view, animators are nothing more than like glorified digital makeup artists. Huh. And it's the actor, uh, wearing the, the mocap rig who's really creating the character. Uh, anyway, back to the email. 
Apparently, The Witcher 3 facial animation was all keyframed. Huh. Uh, Naughty, da- Naughty Dog as well have previously always done their facial animation by hand, even on Uncharted or Last of Us, which are two examples we used uh, in our <laughs> previous discussion, uh, giving it that extra flair and character. I don't know if this is still the case for Uncharted 4. So I, I thought was, I thought that was really valuable context uh, for the discussion we had a couple weeks ago about about mocap and performance because I, I think there is a tendency certainly I'm guilty of it you know when all those uh, you know behind the scenes videos were coming out of Last of Us where you got Troy Baker uh, and the rest of the cast sort of running around in these in these mocap rigs playing out the scenes it was real easy for me in my head to think well I guess that's just how they made the entire game then it was, like everything we saw was just these it was just like it was three. It was digital makeup uh, put o- put over these uh, p- put over these mocap performances. Clearly, that's that's not remotely the case. Like, did your brain still put the demarcation in, Rob? Between that's how they made the cutscenes versus how they made the game, or did you sort of just did your brain end up making the mental leap and sort of not think about well, how how do these characters blend between like a a zillion different poses and stuff as I sort of just waggle an analog stick around Um, or, you know, where, where, just out of curiosity. I think mostly I thought about the cutscenes because I think that was where the sense of humanity was coming from the most in uh, The Last of Us, right? Because a lot of, in between cutscenes, you're playing a a, a Naughty Dog stealth shooter. Yeah, Yeah, you're just, you're bricking guys in the face. Um, Yeah, this whole thing, I, I've, uh, the reference to the Andy Circus story inter- uh, interests me personally because I feel like blame often gets put onto the filmmakers or to sort of in the in game space maybe a creative director or a designer for attributing all of these things to the actor and ignoring their own technical and artist team behind the scenes. But I've always felt like the Andy Circus should get an Academy Award conversation was more the studio trying to get people out of the mindset of this is a cartoon, Gollum is a cartoon. And if they can mm-hmm. say, oh, he's not a cartoon, there's a person there that, like, you know, it gets it gets people maybe to to pay attention to, to the performance or to think that it's for adults or for all audiences in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, which, you know, has incredibly detrimental effects potentially to sort of the public understanding of how this works. It, it it seems like it's just a complicated mess to untangle because that <laughs> communication comes from the people who make the featurettes as much as it comes from the people who are actually working on the films, maybe more so the featurette people. Um, like if you're in the trenches on a film or on a game, you're very, very aware that performance capture data is uh, is the beginning, not the end. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, but I do kind of feel like with the circus example, like I understand why they're making that argument. And this is this like this is. This is something worthy of consideration because we can point to the actor that has created this performance, but then who ends up getting sort of habitually screwed in that (laughs) formulation is Mm -hmm. the entire team of people that create these really memorable performances. And I think you see it a lot in video games to a worrying extent, right? Like people know Troy Baker's name. They know Nolan North's name with a gun to my head. I couldn't name two animators. Uh, working right. on games like this. Yeah, I think it's also especially uh, a bummer in games because in a film, at least you sort of can say, you know, Andy Serkis is in a suit acting against the actors who are actually on the finished plate that you see in the film. Like, he was there and then he was painted over, whereas a game, unless it's her story uh, or something <laughs> like that, is, yeah. a, is actually 100% a constructed reality where the actor is one piece of data inside of everything else that's going on on screen. For a layperson like me, I don't know that much. I've you know taken a couple of animation courses, but I'm not certainly not an animator. I, I forget that it's animation that's happening while I'm playing a game, which is I don't I don't know if that's sort of a thing that most people think about or, or not. But I I it's one of those things that's so seamless, unless of course something looks ridiculous and it's clipping through you know seven planes or something right or like if that. you have yeah. an animator next to you or a friend who's really right. into animation who's getting excited about all the details of the craft that you're seeing coming out of the screen i mean i yeah. think most animators would probably be really happy to hear that you forgot that it was animated and believed that it was real <laughs> and then they would be sad when you think it's real because it's troy baker in a suit um, right yeah <laughs> um i a thing that i found interesting about christian's email was the breakdown between which studios do uh or sort of which studios and which games are keyframed animated, which games are motion capture animated, or in the case of Naughty Dog, where they sort of 
draw the line, like the hand animating faces. And um, it's a reminder that maybe to a certain degree, The Last of Us, for even as dramatic as it is, or Uncharted, is kind of still a cartoon, or at least to maybe take use something uh, that has uh, less a potential pejorative meaning than calling it a cartoon. It's at least maybe more theatrical than it is naturalistic and, and realistic. Um, kind of the same way that Nolan North uh, or Troy Baker or those guys are voice actors. They're not screen actors. They're actors who are used to projecting the way that someone who's in a cartoon or something would, where their voice has to do so much of the heavy lifting in the performance. And um, that's often when you get a keyframe animator is when you want to be able to push expressions and to sort of up the you know when you want to convey more of the emotion at a really coarse level that punches you uh beat for beat as opposed to you know filming an academy award-winning screen actor's face you look at that for the nuance and subtlety and sort of naturalistic human performance and honestly i don't think a lot of games are there um but i do think that you know as as the fidelity increases and as the style of stories that people tell in games broadens out, it seems like there's more and more of a of a room for it, um, which feels like a better use to me for mocap than often is the standard one, which is uh, maybe a misconception that it is cheaper than keyframe animators because you can just you can in quotes just put a guy in a suit, um, <laughs> which obviously as Christian's email points out is is not entirely true at all, um, or just in quotes because it's more realistic. I think the game Her Story is interesting in the context of uh, mocap versus keyframe animation or um, on the other axis that I was bringing up, which is maybe naturalistic versus stylized performances, because in Her Story, they just went all the way to using video of an actual human being giving a performance like an an actress and didn't try to do anything beyond that because they said the focus of this is looking at at an actual person and doing a lot of the things that Christian said uh, in that in the email, uh, but they didn't even try to include the the artifice of it being a 3D game. Like if you if you imagine what her story would be like, were it not FMV and they tried to make this as a CG game, you would lose so much. I think what hearing that email and hearing the previous conversation got me thinking about is is more just which thing is the right tool for the job and which isn't. Yeah. I think something you brought up uh, sort of in our discussion before the show is that you described an a-, a good animator uh, as uh, an actor by necessity, which is something I hadn't ever really thought about. Uh, because, again, going back to like the Last of Us example, it's a situation where I look at something and I'm like, oh, wow, this is really lifelike. And look at all the nuance that these actors are bringing to these characters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the animator's job becomes almost invisible. But if this is all hand animated, then someone has to create all these expressions and gestures that communicate to you, the, you, the player, you, the viewer. Uh, you know, all these shades of meaning and inner conflict and motivation uh, that an actor can can just sort of emote that. And a good actor, will, that'll just sort of come through the performance. But an animator right. well, has to consciously create every aspect of that performance, which is something yeah, they, I guess I hadn't really ever thought about or respected. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and amazing to watch an animator work because they are just sitting at their desk. And if you kind of, if you don't let your eyes focus on what's going on on the screen, they could be doing anything with the computer, but they are acting out a a, a nuanced (laughs) performance over the course of hours and hours and days and weeks of their life. And then suddenly you go to an animation reviewer, they show you what you're working on and you just are bowled over because suddenly there's a lifelike character moving around on the screen. I don't know. It's it's sort of like putting your heart and soul into the performance, even though maybe they're, you know, sitting at a computer. I know a lot of lay people, you know, I talked to my parents or something think, Oh, you just have a magical computer that you, that movies come out of, but it's, it's, really cool and really sort of grounding to think of an animator sort of working in this way. And I know that's a simplistic thing to say, but I find it really, really interesting and really cool that it's like, yeah, the performance just comes through your hands and sort of in this other output as opposed to, you know, drawing physically on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's, or, or as opposed to acting as an actor. And I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a good reminder, I think, to think about animators as actors, but they have a completely different skill set than a screen actor and yeah it, it does just get so mushy the layers the layers peel off 
Uh, I don't know. Well, Jake, thank you for your your input on this. I know you know so much more about animation than we do, so I appreciate you coming on in the middle of sort of finishing your your game that you're doing animation on and such, like actually telling us how this stuff works. <laughs> I'm not an animator. I'm not a trained animator or actor or real really artist, but being able to just walk past uh, the animation department all the years that I was at Telltale was one of my favorite things about being in this industry so i'm happy to i'm happy to talk about it as someone who does not animate but is really fascinated by it nice well we appreciate it so we have another email here this one comes from joel and this was actually on another sort of topic we had discussed which had to do with game mechanics so this is from joel saying dear weekend warriors on games with cultural mechanics as opposed to cultural themes uh lineage the ncsoft mmo from 1998 comes to mind Danielle's point about limited human-machine interaction is true, especially for moment-to-moment input and sort of the feedback loop. But human-to-human interfaces mediated by machines usually have culture baked right in. With its Gong Sung Jun, I hope I said that correctly, uh, which refers to castle sieges, lineage required a level of real-time communication between a number of players that was incredibly difficult in the pre-Ventrilo age, unless you were all in the same room. So I don't think Lineage is mechanically Korean, nationally or historically, game, but a mechanically Korean in the age of PC Bong game. I'm sure there are other better examples, but cultural doesn't always mean national identity, historical narrative, folklore, or mythology. Thank you, Joel, for that email. That makes a lot of sense. This Reading this made me sort of feel like, wow, I kind of don't know what i'm talking about well, <laughs> when it kind of yeah. comes to uh when it comes to game mechanics and i you know i feel a little funny about that because i i do teach some some sort of like very basic level game design classes where we think of mechanics as these very sort of base level things that are sort of one level up above operations you know pressing a button or that sort of thing sort of what's happening on the screen but this really opened my eyes to sort of a totally different way of thinking about this, which was, I appreciated. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really cool example of something that uh, is easy to overlook, right? Which yeah. is that you can design things to work in a certain context that most players outside of a specific region won't ever experience. Uh, and, and yeah, so if there's, it, you know, until fairly recently, you, you couldn't, I guess, create a, a game that relied so heavily on uh, sort of voice communication, real-time communication. And to an extent, I'm still not sure you can, right? Even though the problem is solved, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure even like for all the improvements to, uh, you know, voice over IP, uh, you can sort of recreate the the experience of being in a, P, a PC bong or a, or a game yeah, cafe, yeah. Uh, you know, in in the in the early two thousands. Uh, but if you want to talk about like getting the feeling you you don't know what you're talking about, uh, <laughs> that was my feeling uh, reading this next email uh, from <laughs> Niav Shonher. Uh, she writes, "Hey Danielle and Rob, it's nice hearing Danielle again after missing her presence for a while on Idle Thumbs. Uh, related to the recurring joke from the show, I would have loved to hear Danielle and Spaff hash out Life is Strange <laughs> together. And I'm still curious about how different people feel about that ending and why. I actually have my own thoughts about it, which I'll put at the end of the email in case Rob cares about spoilers. In this case, I am a huge hypocrite and I do care about spoilers. <laughs> so I clipped that part of the email okay. without reading it. We'll and, come back uh, to that one. We'll maybe. revisit it. Yeah, we'll revisit it after I get to yeah. it. So I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Nev. Uh, anyway, she writes, although in general you both seem to think mechanics aren't cultural, you also seemed unsure at the end if they couldn't be cultural. I want to assert that I think all game mechanics convey certain values or ideas. A structure always has some sort of ideology expressed by it, even if it's a very simple one. More points or better is a pretty simple value contained in a lot of old arcade games and pinball machines, and one could elaborate on this by fitting it into a wider social notion that more money is better or similar ideas of success and progress. And so I think all games express some idea about how the world works or should work, and these ideas could in turn be cultural. So I think Danielle, and I believe it was Danielle, was right when she suggested that maybe we don't see much cultural difference in games because they're all being made by people who are similarly interested in and have access to technology. Games today, especially mainstream games, require a lot of capital to produce, and so I think it's no surprise that a lot of games express capitalist ideas. A lot of games have this idea of, if you work harder, you will get better stuff, which is an extremely extremely capitalist notion. Mm -hmm. Look at games like Destiny or Harvest Moon, or even the typical JRPG grind-level trope. 
similarly, the vast open world of something like Minecraft, there to be tamed and exploited by the player, expresses a very colonialist idea of the world. I think the place where we are starting to see the most resistance to these kinds of systems is in queer gaming. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically about Merritt Kopas and Naomi Clark's talk at QGCon 2014, as well as the games people like Anna Anthropy, uh, Laura Dreamfield, and Robert Young, etc., are making. Maybe this is happening the most clearly with queer games because, well, a lot of people making games in the space are still white and middle class. We still have, or at least had growing up, access to technology and the means of learning coding and producing games that, say, someone in Indonesia might not, or rural China, or the Sudan. I'm excited about what will become of games when making a game becomes as easy and accessible as, say, recording a video has, has become compared to what it was when film started. Uh, games like We Know the Devil, Take Care, Cobra Club, Queers in Love at the End of the World, A Place to Fuck Each Other. These games have systems that are expressing a very different culture than, say, Destiny or Dark Souls. I have this adage I repeat, and I'm still working through uh, what, it, what it actually means, but it goes like this. Make less games that are tough but fair, and more games that are soft but unfair. And I think it is an ideological distinction, maybe even a cultural one. Tough but fair is the idea that anyone can succeed if they work hard enough. It's what American culture t tells us, even though it's not really that simple. Soft but unfair is, I think, about showing a world that is inherently flawed, where the deck is stacked against you, where shit is really, really unfair sometimes, but also there's humanity or love or companionship or kindness. It's about systems that say, this world is really fucked up, but maybe we can get through it together. And that's a way different thing than you can win if you just work hard enough. I don't have too much to add other than that was such an incredibly eloquent and well-researched uh, little piece right there. Honestly, that I feel like I want to publish that on my website or something. That's, that's just very smart and very well put together. Um, and yeah, exactly what you were saying, Rob, about feeling like, oh, yeah, I, I missed. <laughs> I feel like I just completely, you know, missed a lot of this in, in thinking about mechanics in a much more simplistic way. And I, too... I sort of applaud the idea of the soft but unfair and, and sort of using using games that are moving towards these spaces. You know, actually, I think Co something like Cobra Club is such a perfect example of this. All of Robert Earing's games, which I am a tremendous fan of, are really moving towards something like this. I've, I've encountered some of this before. Like, I'm, I'm three moves ahead. Uh, my, my partner, Troy Goodfellow, uh, often talks about uh, the hidden curricula of a lot of strategy games that, yeah. you know, a lot of them do have a, a lesson they're trying to teach you about history, about, about some aspect of the world. Uh, and in the course of mastering its systems, you're also, you know, possibly internalizing a message that you're not fully aware of. Uh, at, at the same time, I, I feel like I have to, I have to admit upfront that mm -hmm. I am not the person most qualified to talk about what is and is not a game sure. uh you know <laughs> si like what like to what degree like what what comprises a system but i do to some extent feel like a lot of these examples in a lot of these examples we're sort of conflating content and uh systems right and that's that like that's yeah. kind of what i'm getting at is the the content of a lot of these games is uh, breaking from a lot of the, a lot of the messages you'll find sort of either overtly or covertly, uh, disseminated in AAA games. But what, what I don't think you, you find in, in a lot of these games necessarily is entire systems or mechanics that come from a place, from, from a distinctive cultural place, right? Like, sure. I'm not sure you can say, like, Queers in Love at the End of the World is is a twine game, uh, but but the systems are very simple. But you could use those systems and those mechanics to do literally anything. It's it, there's nothing in, there's nothing inherently culturally specific. I don't think about the structure of these games, but their message, what they're trying to get across, is of course is of course very different. But I feel like that difference that I feel like the difference is meaningful in this discussion. Yeah, I, I mean, I I see where you're coming from, and and. As you were speaking, I was thinking very much of something like Cart Life, where the mechanics were certainly something you you could find in an, another game, a more competitive sort of game, or you could even call it a more capitalist-oriented game, I suppose. But clearly the message and the content said something entirely different. Um, I, I think I'm sort of struggling as well with sort of the idea that, well, <sighs> mechanics and operations, I, I still sort of get muddled sometimes to be honest, in my mind and sort of the way systems interact. I, I don't always have a clear picture. Sometimes I'll, I'll be completely honest and upfront about that. I don't always have the clearest picture of where one sort of delineates from another. 
what I what I do see certainly is is the point being made here is sort of the medium is the message in a lot of ways. The systems being the medium. And I know Brenda Romero has done a lot of work on this, and you know, sort of the God, what was it? The mechanic is the message. Some of her her work, you know, so the the game about trains and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, which I find really interesting. This is the sort of stuff where, again, I'll be completely honest. I don't know if I'm smart enough to deal with it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite if I like have the mental machinery to to actually delineate where things sort of happen at that level at this is sort of systemic level well i mean and that's why I, I liked this email so much i i felt like i actually learned something from a completely different perspective from somebody who's actually studied this whereas i'm sort of like yes a, a mechanic is x y and z and an operation is x y and z well, and it doesn't help that that's all such contested space to begin with yeah right? that's certainly like, true <laughs> the, the, the fact that the moment like queer games started to become a thing yeah there was also this there was suddenly this really keen interest in what is and is not a game, right? And so the idea of like, so now discussing mechanic systems also got tied into this entirely other discussion about which, uh, which I think was, was fundamentally about the merit of, of outsider games, uh, and, and, and queer games and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult space to work in and, and discuss, especially if you're not really, really well versed in, in the territory. But I, yeah. I just, I, I am, I'm just a little wary of, conflating content and mechanics uh, sure. a little too much. And the other thing is, I guess you can make the capitalist critique of a, of a ton of games. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure that how much of it is like human instinct and the way our brains are sort of meant yeah. to, to, to do things with limited resources versus sort of the entire system of capitalism as an extension of that. Right. And when you, when you talk to a lot of game designers talking about like the, the reason these systems exist, it's not necessarily, I'm not sure it's necessarily because we're all, God, I hope it's not because <laughs> uh, we're all just like programmed uh, right. like little like rats in a maze to pursue the capitalist street. We might well be, I could be like, it could be sure. totally wrong, but it, also like it just seems people really enjoy doing a thing to unlock new possibilities, new, new, new sources of power. And that can be interpreted as, you know, you interpret that as a capitalist, uh, you know, a capitalist motif. Uh, you can interpret it as sort of a motif of, uh, you know, uh, classically heroic stories, heroic epics, uh, hero's journey kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I love this email because I had so many reactions to it. Uh, and it, it left me with such a long list of things to consider. <laughs> Uh, so it, yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously this is not something we can definitively answer, but, uh, it's, it's definitely a lot of food for thought. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, definitely. Thank, <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you, Niamh, uh, for, for writing in. Yes. Thank you. Seriously. And, and I also am always wary of sort of trying to define something by what it isn't, you know, almost like what is a capitalist game? Well, it'll be the opposite of a communist game. You know, that, that sort of thing. I'm always like, Okay, where where am I actually coming from at the sort of atomic level versus oh god, I I I can't quite understand this, so I'm going to go at it from opposites. So, yeah, it's very illustrative email and really appreciate it. Okay. So, we have another email here. Uh this is also this one is about limitless actually, which is really <laughs> great. And this one comes from uh, Kelvin Lai. <clears throat> Hi Idle Weekend. As someone who is working to become a working TV writer and has been watching dozens of shows, Limitless is actually, in fact, good. Yes, CBS airs sometimes really uh, derided shows or those past their prime. They also air some of the most intelligent or clever shows this side of cable channels. The show is absolutely fun, smartly written and edited, and I would definitely encourage other people to watch it. Uh, The show's basic setup is already the typical Mr. Super Super Abilities and Detective Lady Skeptic, which also, fun factoid, is the easiest way to sell your show internationally. I think the show is also hard to pin down because of the feeling Rob described is not wrong. After 11 episodes, the show refuses to settle on how it wants to be watched. The past couple of episodes have all broken from the normal cop show formula, sometimes in small ways or even entirely, which makes it very intriguing to watch, even if it happens to burn itself out. So no, Rob, you are not crazy. If the show continues on its current trajectory, it is likely to pick up more attention from critics and the audience. And lastly, love the format for Idle Weekend. Hope to see more time spent on non-gaming topics. Thank you so much, Kelvin. We, we clearly already in this show. We're, oh, we're showing God. some I'm non-gaming not crazy. topics. I knew it. <laughs> Rob, you're not crazy. No, a shocking number of people like 
wrote in and got in touch via Twitter to be like, no, you're not crazy. That's it's a weird. <laughs> it's a weirdly good show. Uh, which kind of sums up my relationship with it right now. But, uh, I, I did kind of enjoy the, the insights that, that Kelvin brought as someone who works in, works in television. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his discussion, uh, we, we, we couldn't, we, we had to cut this part, but his discussion of sort of, uh, how the overall CBS lineup, uh, actually is, is a lot more intriguing than, than people give it credit for being, uh, you know, with shows like Elementary and, and such where, you know, CBS, you know, despite a reputation as being sort of the most white bread net- network, <laughs> uh, is yeah. often a place where you, where you'll find surprisingly inclusive shows that, that deal with, um, uh, surprisingly sophisticated themes, uh, you know, such as elementary's really, really excellent handling of, of things like addiction. I haven't seen it, but Rob, I believe you and I don't think you're crazy. Now, I have a TV question and we're going to go right into our weekend projects, the things that we've been really interested in watching, reading, listening to, et cetera, et cetera. Rob, you mentioned at one point, uh, you know, in, in our shows, you know, not very long, uh, sort of breadth of episodes so far, but you did mention watching a lot of Fargo. Uh, and I have just spent uh, the last week or so watching most of season one and then just jumping right into season two of Fargo. And man, oh man, do I have opinions, many of them conflicting <laughs> about this show. And I sort of wanted to bounce some ideas off of you, if that's okay with you, before I hear about your weekend project. Lay them on me. Okay. Season one was something I enjoyed as sort of a cop, you know, interesting, kind of funny uh, sort of show about a cop trying to do well, you know. Um, and, and, I, and it, you know, I found it cool. I found it interesting. I, I liked the sort of main female character who, Molly. That Molly Salverson. Yeah, that's right. Detective Salverson. I liked that it sort of showed her struggles to be sort of the most competent, best cop in this kind of small town where all the men sort of always, you know, just ran her over and, and didn't care. I like that she looked like a normal woman would look. She, she's not like super skinny Hollywood model. I, I really liked sort of a lot of the signifiers of the show. I liked Billy Bob Thornton's character. I liked the way the show was quirky and weird and put, you know, big name Hollywood actors in these uh, kind of funny very, very stylized roles. Then I went into season two where it becomes this, you know, stylized almost to an extreme 70s, almost exploitation-ish cop show matching and pastiche of elements that I can't tell you if I like it or not, but I can't stop watching it. So I basically am still watching this because I, I enjoy sort of the uh, <laughs> Nick Offerman basically playing an ACLU lawyer <laughs> in Carl Weathers. You know, he is getting me through this show right now uh, because I am just so entertained by his performance. But I am so turned off by I really dislike almost every character and not just on a, you know, I think they're morally reprehensible level. I I have no problem watching and enjoying shows about morally reprehensible people see Hannibal <laughs> as, a, as a good example, a good recent example. But I just don't care about these people, almost any of them. Um, you know, this is a show about sort of a, a, a crime syndicate that comes in and starts a war with another crime syndicate in a small town in the late 70s. Um, and, you know, sort of the people who have gotten caught up in this, the, you know, the sort of good good guy cop and his his family that are all sort of caught up in the drama and this really dopey couple who also get caught up in this drama and i just i i couldn't care less if most of these people you know died in a fire and i don't know why i but I feel you can't so, stop watching it i can't stop watching i cannot stop i just need to see where it goes um i also have some issues on sort of like you know maybe this will be predictable i apologize if it is but i have some issues with how how some of the characters have been sort of represented. And I'm not entirely sure if the sort of creative voices behind the show are, you know, really intentionally using a lot of stereotypes and tropes to say something. And I will say that I have not finished the season yet. So there might be something much more clever and interesting going on here. Um, but these, the character of Peggy, the sort of very, you know, kind of dopey, uh, you know, suburban housewife who basically kind of has her husband lie for her and get involved in a pretty gross crime. Um, you know, it almost feels like she's she's like this straw man argument, like a walking straw man against women's liberation in the late 70s. There's a character, Hansi, who's a, you know, 
he's an Indian uh, person or American Indian. And it, it just feels to me like they're, they're very much either just going with this sort of stereotype of almost like the mystical person oh, yeah. of color. I don't know if they're going to do something with this, and I kind of hope they do, but it is definitely rubbing me the wrong way, but in sort of both of those cases. Also, well, Mike Milligan, who is a uh, African-American character, who's this awesome dude. He has an afro, and he kind of does the, the sort of almost like jive talk thing, and I'm kind of like, all right, there, there's another stereotype. Like, let's whoa, keep... no, 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 no. I don't no, know. No, there's no way that, okay, hang on. There, there's no way that, like, like go back and listen to his <laughs> encounters right. with, with these other characters. Like, if you look at, like, a lot of the interactions that Milligan has, he tends to be one of the most observant and actually one of the most well-spoken. He's the most articulate uh, person in the show, by far and away. Well, him and Carl Weathers, of course. Yeah, like, his, his language is stylized, but I think it's stylized in the way that, like, a lot of... A lot of TV writing that I really enjoy mm-hmm. is sort of in love with language. And, oh, you, and you love Aaron Sorkin, too. Fargo season two is a lot about what people are talking around while they say something else. And I think that's the most pronounced with Milligan. And so he has this great conversation with uh, sort of Lou Salverson, this, this, uh, the, 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 the local cop who's, who's investigating these crimes. And they have this little conversation about Minnesota nice. Uh, oh yeah, which is yes, uh, if you if you come from the Midwest, like this is a famous thing. Like Minnesota nice is kind of like legendary, right? People in Minnesota <laughs> are, are are so nice, uh, and I've been there. It's not, it, it's it's not a stereotype. It's it's true. Like people seem nicer in uh in the in in the northern Midwest, and it's something you have to live there for a while to slowly figure out that a lot of times that politeness, that niceness, is a form. It's it, it's just it's a performance. Uh, but people are can be as mean and judgmental as they like. Sure. Beneath that veneer, and what Milligan does in this one scene is is he kind of he kind of peels it away. Like someone tries to brush him off and say, "Well, you know, we're we're pretty nice around here," and Milligan sort of pins him down and says, "Like, well, no, no, actually, you're you're quite the opposite. <laughs> but it's the way you're it's the way you're not nice, uh, and it, like the way the way he sort of." The way the way he talks around both his intent uh, and the things he's actually there to do, which are almost all violent, yeah. uh, and it's all implied in every in every scene. Uh, the way he evades ever saying something directly um, is, is really quite lyrical. I find, okay. but I, I, I would I would actually defend I would defend that character in particular because because I, I think Milligan ends up being he's certainly stylized. Uh, but I think the way he speaks is, is more, he's, he's a character who's hyper aware of language and, and lyricism, uh, in a way that a lot of these other characters are not. Sure. I mean, I'll, I will totally accept that. Again, I haven't finished the series yet. So I will reserve judgment for, you know, upon finishing the series, certainly. The, the thing you, 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 you mentioned at the start, though, is something is a feeling I had a lot watching the show. And it's a feeling I have a lot with a lot of media I consume, sure. which is that it's it, it it's this pastiche of things that are like irresistible to you, right? Like you can't stop watching, but there's this voice in the back of your head where it's like, should I should I really be enjoying this? Is this good? Yeah, or is it just <laughs> serving up stuff to flatter me? Which is a feeling I struggle with a lot. Like I'm like I I, I love Tarantino movies, uh, but I always have this bad feeling you know at the back of my mind where i'm like oh man this might not actually be good at all but you're just you're just along for the stylized ride uh and and you're not engaging critically with it and i I did get that feeling uh from from fargo season two as well i get it from i mean honestly i get it from a lot of video games i like we're almost you're 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 feeling like this is just pandering to something and it's, it's just supposedly flattering my intellect to be engaging in this and having this conversation with other people that i feel are intelligent you know, publicly, man, I am just struggling so hard with with my own personal feelings on this show, and I and I sort of recognize the the obvious quality that went into writing it, directing it, editing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, it's just I, I keep sort of fighting with myself as I'm watching it. You know, I'm sort of tweeting sometimes well, about like, man, I just I don't know if I like this, but I <laughs> I just I just had a realization listening to you yeah. talk. Yeah, is it that? We're also a little tired of like this realization that to an extent you're a target demographic, right? Where sure. like people have figured <laughs> out how to pin you down. And so like 
Fargo season two is like, oh, you like you, you like Cohen Brothers wackiness with an yeah. element of 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 seventies like exploitation film violence. Well, well, here you go. We're going to give you that thing you love, and it's it's gonna there's gonna be all these like clever uh, these clever little touches that you'll notice and you'll appreciate, and you'll have that moment of sort of congratulating yourself and congratulating the show on that nicely executed, uh, you know, that, that beautiful shot, that that great edit. Uh, I got this feeling a lot from The Force Awakens, uh, sure, too, which sure, is absolutely yeah. like. Hey, remember remember how good Star Wars was? Oh man, we love Star Wars as much as you guys do. So so <laughs> so here you go, have episode four again, uh, and have all these things ex- ex- that explicitly call back to the stuff that that means a lot to you. Uh, and and to an extent, I I think maybe what we're both reacting to on some level is that sometimes I start to feel like I'm becoming a prisoner of my own tastes. Sure. Because yeah. suddenly a lot of the media I consume is, is so obviously tailored around, around those tastes. Yes. Right. And it, it can get a little cloying. It, it can get very cloying. I think you're absolutely right about this. It's weird. I almost feel like intellectually dishonest with myself thinking about it. Like how, how much am I engaging with this and how much am I congratulating myself for engaging with this? Uh, so yeah, I think <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, and I think maybe I should. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's always, of course, the the question of sort of entertainment, comfort food versus things that actually challenge you uh, intellectually or otherwise. And I I wonder sometimes if if the two have been conflated in something like Fargo season two, where it's like, oh, this is this is fun fun times action stuff, but also I'm supposed to feel good about it because it's you know intellectually stimulating on some level at least. It's a battle, I guess, that I'm that I'm losing right now with myself <laughs> in Fargo season two. But that that is probably more than enough Fargo season two talk. Rob, what what have you been enjoying and and probably actually enjoying and not <laughs> wrestling with yourself on? Uh, so I'm not going to get too much into it, uh, especially because it'll be a huge conversation after we finally pl- when I, after I finally play it. I started playing her story. Oh, uh, excellent! Over, uh, over the break yeah. and, and very recently. And I have to say, so far, um, you know, it's, it's – spoiler, it's brilliant. Uh, like, <laughs> but sure. I, I think it was one of those cases where I'd heard so much about it that I was totally primed to be underwhelmed. Yeah. And you can't imagine my relief where within, like, two minutes of starting this game – I've got the notebook open, like two pages. I'm assembling this timeline, creating this like sort of dramatic persona. Like, okay, who's <laughs> who's referred to here? What's their relationship? Uh, like, I'm I'm convinced before I end this game, I'm going to have like sort of the wall with the pictures and the the, the you know the red <laughs> string like, connecting yeah. the ideas and everything as I sort of see the whole picture. But I think something I find so compelling about this game is that. So because you because your entire way of interacting with it is is just through the search terms, right? Just figuring out yeah. like what's going to come up. Uh that a lot of it turns into uh this game of guessing of, of making inferences but also figuring out the things that have not been explicitly said. Just taking these shots in the dark like okay, I, I have this feeling that this relationship existed with this person. Uh so I'm going to use a term like uh like or something. Mm-hmm. That's actually a term where I got a huge amount of really useful critical info. Sure. Uh, just from yeah. this, this, just from this one term, uh, that I don't think it ever come up explicitly anywhere, but it was, the, it was a really cool moment for me where, you know, just sort of on this gut level, you had a feeling that this, this concept, this, this element of a relationship was this un, unspoken, like guest in the conversation, even though nobody had brought it up in the clips I had. Yeah. And then you could see, like, okay, well, I wonder, like, if there was something there. And lo and behold, it's it's the key to a whole raft of new information. And then you're off to chase down these new mysteries and these new inferences. Uh, it's just – it's unbelievably satisfying uh, to explore. Yeah. God, I, I just feel like that is the purest uh, actual sort of role-playing game in the, in the actual pure sense of that, in that it, it actually – when I played it, I actually felt like a detective. I actually felt very – Oh yes, let me get my notebook out and 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 feel very serious about this and 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 that sort of thing. And my God, I'm I'm so glad to hear that you're enjoying the game and and getting a lot out of it. 
it's certainly something that, you know, I, I had it in my sort of top 10 games of the year list. I, I cooled on it a tiny bit sort of after I was in that euphoric period of, oh my God, I've searched for the things and I, you know, feel so, so accomplished in being this great detective for two hours. <laughs> but it, it's just, yeah. I, I'm really glad that Polygon, my very, very recently <laughs> former employer, uh, <laughs> sort of uh, uh, chose that as the game of the year for 2015. Good feelings all around <laughs> on that. Awesome. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Uh, this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And please, if you're enjoying the show, Please tell a friend, tell them that you, you love our discourse, <laughs> that you love having us in your ears. Uh, I guess you don't have to say it no, that Nothing way. gets people <laughs> fired up, like having your friend tell you, you must listen to this podcast. The discourse is amazing. Uh, the discourse is great in your ears. It has great ear feel. Yes, it's a, you know, the way to, that's definitely the way to sell this, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but please, seriously, do tell friends. Uh, do rate us on iTunes. That sort of stuff really helps us out so much. And uh, we, we appreciate so much. We had so many excellent emails uh, this week, the last couple of weeks. Uh, please keep that up. And thank you for listening. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Awesome. Yeah, that was fun. I, I like this. <laughs> Are you guys enjoying this? Oh, yeah. This, this is pretty this, awesome. This is exquisitely awkward. <laughs> this week on Idle Weekend, Jake Rodkin yells at a child. <laughs> I will not. Oh, my God. It's three men and a baby. <laughs> no, seriously. He slumped down really low. <laughs> I guess we just have to raise this young child for ourselves. <laughs> I know. Like Lego Universe is your parent now. Just let it be quiet. I see the unsolvable problem, Jake. I think Jake is definitely the Ted Danson character. Yep, I think so too. I think so too. I think maybe you should just make like a really loud fart noise <clears throat> and kind of like make a face and be like, "Oh, um, okay." How does this solve the problem? Out, this is. This is... <laughs> yeah, I don't think that plan is good. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a great plan. Thank you.